Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. High school students in Wisconsin are increasingly reporting depression and suicidal thoughts, according to a new survey that asked youth about their mental health in fall of 2021. The results confirm national reports of a national mental health crisis spurred by the pandemic, reports the Capital Times. About one-third of respondents reported they, quote, felt sad or hopeless almost every day for more than two weeks. Nearly one in five students, quote, seriously considered attempting suicide, while about one in ten attempted death by suicide one or more times in the past year. One in ten. Nearly half of lesbian, gay, and bisexual students reported that they seriously considered or have attempted suicide. Nearly half. In a press release announcing the results, State Superintendent of Schools Jill Underly called for drastic measures to intervene. The leader of the Assembly Democrats, Greta Neubauer, has announced the Democratic appointments to the Joint Committee on Finance, the legislature's budget writing committee that controls all appropriations and taxes, among other things. Representative Evan Goike of Milwaukee was reappointed. Representative Tip McGuire from Kenosha is a new member of the committee. Both Goike and McGuire are attorneys. The Assembly Democrats are allotted two appointments, while the Assembly Republicans get six. The same proportion is used to allocate seats in the Senate. This results in a total of 12 Republican and four Democratic members. A Kewanee County industrial dairy farm, along with the manure hauler and a consultant, are being sued by the State Department of Justice for covering up a plan to spread almost 2 million gallons of excess manure. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Wacker Dairy, which operates a concentrated animal feeding operation, or CAFO, found itself with too much poop in 2019. It then hired a manure hauler to spread the excess poop. Then both parties, along with a crop consultant, falsified documents to underreport the amount spread on the field, according to a criminal complaint filed late last week. The three parties are being charged with conspiracy to commit a crime and fraudulent writing. The manure hauler is also being charged with several counts of discharging pollutants into waters. Environmental advocates say the incident highlights the danger of having large industrial farms self-report their manure spreading. Kiwani County, located on the Door County Peninsula, has become ground zero for debates over how to regulate the growing practice of manure spreading, which is common on CAFO farms. Kiwani County is especially susceptible to drinking water contamination, given its delicate geology, uh, which facilitates the spread of bacterial contaminants from manure. The attorneys for the state agent charged with shooting Quadron Wilson during a traffic stop earlier this year want the Dane County District Attorney removed from the case due to a conflict of interest. The agent, Mark Wagner, works for the Division of Criminal Investigation. He was charged in September with second-degree reckless endangerment for shooting Wilson during a traffic stop on February 3rd. That stop involved 21 law enforcement officers from federal, state, and local authorities. Wilson was unarmed. Wagner's lawyers contend that the Dane County DA Ismail Ozan and others from his office might be called as material witnesses in the case and therefore have a conflict of interest. The agent's attorney said the DA's office was deeply involved with a drug investigation in which Wilson was one of the primary targets. 
This involved in, uh, this involvement included planning his arrest. Following his recovery from the gunshots, Wilson pled guilty to distributing of distribution of fentanyl and possession of cocaine and was sentenced to three years in prison. A Wisconsin company that contracts with meatpacking plants to clean their facilities at night has been ordered by a federal judge to stop employing children. The business was also ordered to dismiss their current underage employees, reports the Associated Press. Packers Sanitation Service, Inc. was charged with hiring dozens of minors, some as young as 13 years old, to work overnight cleaning meatpacking facilities using high-powered hoses, heavy equipment, and chemicals. Some of the children, located by the Department of Labor, had chemical burns on their arms and faces. A report by the department also revealed that plant managers attempted to interfere with agents attempting to interview the minors. Packers Sanitation Services has promised to hire an outside consultant to prevent use of underage underage labor, and an investigation is still ongoing. But there was no report on any fines or penalties against the company. A committee tasked with renaming Thomas Jefferson Middle School has sent forth four finalists for a new name to the school board. The four persons for whom the school might now be named are Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman with whom Jefferson fathered six children, Easton Hemings, or Eston Hemings, I guess it is, Jefferson, a son of Hemings who moved to Madison and passed as white throughout his life, Ezekiel Gillespie, who was born enslaved, moved to Madison and successfully sued for the right to vote, and Maya Angelou, who of course is an acclaimed poet and author. The committee sifted and winnowed through 42 suggestions submitted by the public to land on these finalists. Jefferson would be the fourth Madison school to be renamed recently as part of an ongoing racial reckoning. Here's a friendly reminder from the TSA. Do not pack your dog or any other animal in your luggage. This reminder was spurred after TSA agents found a small dog in a backpack as it traveled as it passed through the x-ray at the Dane County Airport. The traveler said he forgot he packed his pup. When traveling with a pet, remove it from the carrier and have it go through the metal detector with you and not the x-ray with your carry-on luggage. And now on to today's top stories. Some Wisconsin farmers have indicated uh, have indicated they if they received more incentives to plant cover crops, they would do so. A new state program that offers rebates through crop insurance is getting started with supporters hopeful it will make the cover crop movement stronger. Mike Moen is with the Wisconsin News Connection. Agriculture groups and government agencies aren't slowing down in trying to convince farmers to use more sustainable practices like cover crops. And Wisconsin producers who have joined that movement will soon be able to sign up for reimbursements. Starting Monday, farmers who planted cover crops this year can apply for a $5 per acre rebate on their summer 2023 crop insurance premium. Applications are submitted to the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. Margaret Crome is with the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, which led the push for the new program. She says similar initiatives in other Midwestern states have paid off. The folks who have worked in Illinois have said they're always oversubscribed. There have tremendous demand for the program. And many of the farmers are farmers who are using it for the first time. 
Ancrum says a 2019 survey by Michael Fields found a majority of Wisconsin farmers said this type of incentive would compel them to either start planting cover crops or expand their acreage. She notes this doesn't solve all the problems tied to row crop agriculture, but it does improve soil health, reduce runoff, and ultimately boost farmers' profits. Nancy Cavazanjan, a farmer in Beaver Dam, has been using cover crops for nearly two decades. She says they're a great benefit, although she's found it challenging in Wisconsin because of the short window to plant them before winter. There's hope the rebate will convince producers like her to stay committed to the movement. It's a nice carrot for those of us who have planted cover crops already this year. And any extra that we can get to encourage more people to use cover crops is appreciated. State officials say there's $800,000 or 160,000 acres of coverage to be awarded on a first-come, first-served basis. And producers who receive state or federal cost-sharing to plant cover crops in 2022 are ineligible. The application period runs until January 31st. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Last night, the Madison Common Council gathered for their final meeting of the year. Over the nearly five-hour session, the council passed legislation on alder elections, the city's metro system, and a proposal to fund job training for lower-income BIPOC and LGBTQ plus youth and adults. WORT reporter Andy Barrow has the story. Last night's Madison Common Council meeting began with a reading from Madison's Poet Laureate, Angie Trudell Vasquez, followed by a pair of items awarding the 16th annual Jeffrey Clay Erlanger Civility and Public Discourse Award to local nonprofit executive Alexis London and honoring outgoing alder Syed Abbas. During the meeting, the council discussed a resolution to stagger alder elections, which narrowly passed with a vote of 14-4 and 5 opposed. Now, alders in even-numbered districts will run for office in even-numbered years, with alders in odd-numbered districts running in odd-numbered years. To make this transition possible, some alders elected in spring 2025 will only serve for terms of a single year, instead of the usual two. The council also unanimously approved ordinances for redesigning Madison's bus stops, under a shift called Network Redesign, and implementing a new citywide transportation demand management program. Much of the discussion last night centered around dueling proposals to fund community-based organizations. The organizations the city selects will have to use the money to fund job skills training and employment services for lower-income, BIPOC, and LGBTQ youth and adults. Ultimately, the council unanimously agreed to a plan which will put up to $1,750,000 up for grabs. Instead of being earmarked for particular programs, the city will require organizations to submit competing spending plans. The Community Development Division will then review those proposals and score them to decide which organizations to fund. The council rejected an alternative proposal that would have granted the Community Development Division nearly $160,000 in additional funding for additional projects. Alder Tag Evers, the bill's sponsor, said he put it forward at the request of the selection committee. We have issues in our city with shots fired. We have issues with young people getting hold of guns and shooting at each other. Jobs are the key. These, we have a chance to apply 159,000, 15 people, 25 people, 30 young men and women having their lives changed. It's not a nothing. I ask you to consider that as you vote. Alder Eric Paulson, who voted against the bill, said he was in favor of granting additional funding to the organizations. But he objected to the alternative proposal, saying that the council should use a more systematic process to allocate its funds. 
So yeah, I think we need to I think we need to think a little bit harder about how to spend this money rather than what's the first thing uh, that we can get a vote to do because I don't think this is a, a particularly great process. Representatives of the Urban League of Greater Madison, Operation Fresh Start, the Latino Academy of Workforce Development, and other community-based organizations were also present at the meeting. Reuben Anthony, president and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Madison, asked why one of his organization's job programs was not funded. Our trainees have um, built homes on the south side. They've worked on the SSM remodel and have done just a whole lot of uh, innovative work while they've trained. In fact, the CEI program has been critical to helping develop a pipeline of black and brown and women workers who traditionally have been locked out of the construction industry. Not having this program will be a missed opportunity because the trades will continue to be an occupation that provides stable and high-wage careers now and in the future. You can drive around the city of Madison and you can kind of see on what things are. The council will meet next on January 3rd of next year. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. In addition to deciding the future of Alder's terms and funding community organizations, the Common Council, as we just heard from Andy Barrow there, honored former Alder Syed Abbas after his resignation from the council last week. Abbas spoke at last night's meeting, thanking his fellow Alders, his constituents, and many others for helping him during his time as Alder. Earlier today, Abbas sat down with our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, for an exit interview as he prepares for life outside the council. I will start with uh, my dear wife, Holly. I think so, a lot of uh, my constituents, they praise about my work. Nothing could have been done without her. She is the true public servant. We had a toddler and then she was uh, pregnant and morning sick and she let me go out and do an election campaign and do the knocking the doors and you know how tough it is during the winter. I was new in Madison, doesn't know what Progressive Day is, doesn't know the political landscape, just put my name on the ballot and just want to work for people. And without her, she's the true public servant for me. And without her, nothing could have been done. So I appreciate her and my kids. Then I also appreciate my constituent as an immigrant coming to Madison. I didn't come directly from, Madi- from Pakistan to Madison, but from New York City. The, the love I received from Neighborhood Association, the long-lasting friendship, as Jeff mentioned, Jeff Arlington, uh, I'm not an alder, we are family. These people in my district, they are family. This Neighborhood Association I work, they are family. They stood with me, they welcomed me, they helped me. They helped me to navigate and helped me to make the scene what community really want. And that is the core of our job. And that's what I focus at. What my district want, how could I best serve my district? That was Syed Abbas speaking for the final time as Alder of District 12 here in Madison at last night's Common Council meeting. As last week, Abbas officially resigned from the council. Former Alder Abbas joins me now to reflect on his time as Alder here in Madison. Syed, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. 
It's, it is my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. And now, sort of starting things off, you've you've been representing District 12 on the uh, east and north sides of Madison since uh, 2019. And uh, like I said before, you've announced your resignation and officially resigned last week, uh, just just a few months before the next election. So starting off here, why, why did you choose to resign from the council instead of, uh, say, staying on your seat uh, for another few months until April? Yeah, a good question. I wish I could stay longer. Uh, I try to stay as long as possible, and I thought the budget session is so critical for the district, for City of Madison, and especially public market was. Uh, the future of public market was very questionable, and I want to provide that leadership and make sure that projects move forward uh, for the district 12, as the public market is in the, my district, but also for City of Medicine. So that's the reason I stay until the you know, uh, budget, but I recently, my family bought a house on the far east side, and uh, I, was, uh, uh, I want to spend more time with the family and uh, with the kids. So with all that and my kindergarten, five-year-old, she started a kindergarten. And uh, there's a lot of family stuff happening. So I just decided to take a small break and spend more time with the family. And uh, a good major part of the district, big decisions already being done. And now we are in a, hopefully we will get a, a good, good race in District 12 and people who engage with the constituents. So I'm excited and looking forward to it. And sort of going off of that, do you know if the council is uh, planning on assigning someone to serve in your seat for the uh, few months before the spring election? Or or do you know if they're just going to uh, leave the seat as is and wait to elect someone in April? So the history of the council is, as, as per I know, historically, whenever these situations happen, an order leave before election, very close to election, they keep that seat vacant and let the neighboring alder to answer constituent service. We are just three months away. Uh, if you remove December, January, February, March, April is election. So very close to the election. But uh, uh, the council president this time uh, took a different route and decided to uh, have somebody take an interview through Common Council Executive Committee and put somebody as a, as, as a interim so there, there is a resolution last night I read, and that resolution basically our uh, council president is hosting a special CCEC meeting on December 12th, sorry, December 22nd, and uh, they will make a decision on January 3rd and appoint somebody on District 12 seat. Now, looking back a little bit at your time on the council, you've been a, a pretty important member during some uh, very important times here in Madison. You you were on the council during the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. Uh, you were president of the council during uh, last year's big debates over uh, bus rapid transit. And I know last night you mentioned the uh, Oscar Mayer area. So looking looking back, what would you say was your, your proudest moment on the council, what is one thing that you really look back on and feel feel the most proud that you and your city were able to accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. So ACEE have a ranking in sustainability for each city. Those rankings are really developed on the basis of how much legislative work, uh, implementation of various energy efficiency measures has been done in City of Medicine. Historically, City of Medicine is leading in those efforts. But over the period of time, we are still in a catch-up situation 
or legislative front. So what I did, I developed EV charging ordinance, uh, which really create an infrastructure and promote electrification in city of medicine. I'm really proud of that. That really helped us to move forward. Our ranking in city of medicine make us very, very great, livable, clean environment, clean air. I also worked very hard on PFAS uh, and making sure we have a budget allocation in PFAS, which is uh, county, uh, Air National Guard, and city. All three parties are responsible, according to DNR. So it's extremely important for us, for me as a council president, to push for it. Uh, we also have worked on building tune-up ordinance. That is, has not been introduced in the council, but it took one year of effort between the mayor office Alder Tag Evers and myself, and later we also involve other council members to really uh, create consensus and bring a policy which can also further reduce carbon emission in the city of medicine. So these are some on the environmental front, but I am really proud to work with my constituent and really advocate for them to protect the wetland on the, on the north side of medicine, right behind the Oscar Meyer at Hartmeyer area. That was also a remarkable effort. It took over four years of advocacy, taking their voices on the council, making many amendments, working with the city staff, and also finding a best compromise between housing and environment. Because there need to be balance. We need affordable housing. We need housing overall in the city of Madison. But at the same time, we need to balance our environment, environmental needs. And through environmental justice land, we really need to make sure we protect people from contamination. So contamination is another area which I really fought hard or advocate really hard. So these are some of the things I really feel proud. They are quite a bit of achievement. And we end up saving 15-acre land out of 30 as a wetland. Now, looking at the other end of the spectrum there, is there anything that you you feel like was sort of left on your table during your time? Anything that you didn't quite get to uh, when you served as older that maybe you want the, the next council to uh, take a closer look at? Yeah, so I think so. one of the things which uh, really critical time in the history of City of Medicine, we spent $100,000 of dollars, many study on body-worn camera. And when I was council president, I find consensus between the body and got 11 vote to adopt body-worn camera. Now, the funding is another issue that council still have to allocate fund. And I'm really hoping, I wish uh, if I could stay longer, I could finish that process as well. But I'm optimistic the next council will take that challenge. And uh, another thing is I'm really proud of the biggest thing I was really proud is the last thing which I did is public market, which have a huge equity uh, impact on community of colors, immigrants, as well as small businesses in the city of Madison. And, and saving public market, uh, uh, I'm very proud of the foundation, their work, without their support, community support, my constituent, I think so it would be very hard to do. So public market is great. I am really looking forward to see the public market being done, developed, and operational in next upcoming years. Now, Syed, now that you aren't on the council and, you know, you won't be getting, uh, you know, weekly phone calls from me uh, asking about this or that, uh, I, I want to ask, what's on the horizon? Uh, what, what, what are you doing now? I know you said that last night isn't goodbye. So, so what comes next for you? Yeah, and I, as I mentioned last night, 
for us, uh, like the perspective I bring, being grow up and raised in a developing country, travel across the world, study in a different continent in Europe, living and working here in America. My, my family, both girls are born and raised here in Madison. So have a, Madison is my home. And I really feel like the experience I gain, uh, it's just a small break to spend some time with family. As uh, kids are growing up, I have an older dad. He's visiting me. Taking care of him is very, very important to me. So after then, hopefully when the next opportunity comes, or just working in a public service on a committee. I, I sit on a river food pantry board right now on the north side. So I am committed to stay engaged in one way or another in some capacity within the community and try to make a difference. I've been talking with former older Syed Abbas, who resigned from the Common Council last week. Syed, thank you as always for coming on and talking with me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Local parks have many purposes, but an often overlooked one is historical preservation. At Schumacher Farm Park, history is placed front and center. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, contributor Sean Bull heads to Wanakee. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. Schumacher Farm Park is unlike any other park in Dane County. Over this past fall, I've covered private farms that cater to tourists and former farms which were bought by the county and converted back to nature. Schumacher resembles neither of those. Its backfields and forests have indeed been returned to their natural state but the central plot for which the park is named is still decidedly farmland. Marcella Schumacher donated her family's home to the county in the 1970s, but the property has been restored to show what a Wisconsin farm would have been like in the 20s and 30s. The park is an outdoor museum with information attached to nearly every object you come across. Normally, I focus this feature through the lens of my own opinion, but there's so much going on here that I need to call in some help from the park staff. I'm Amanda Shearer, and I work part-time at Schumacher Farm Park as the office administrator. So Amanda, what makes Schumacher Farm Park unique when compared with other Dane County parks? We do have, obviously, grounds and trails and nature, and we have prairie, and we're actually expanding with Dane County Parks to add tons more acreage of prairie here in this area surrounding the park. It's like a five-year plan. But we also still have the historic farmhouse that Marcella and her family lived in, and then the historic barns. So we have this whole historic farmyard that's pretty unique. The farmhouse is only open for like special events, but our historical volunteers work in there every week gathering and documenting antiques that we have to fill the house and, and just around the park. And then we also built this Center for Rural History, which is a newer kind of barn that houses some equipment upstairs, but the downstairs is an office and also bathrooms and a event space. So we have indoor workshops there. We use it as an event space rental for the public, for private events. So we have a lot going on that kind of does set us apart from other county parks. And it really 
I feel like it all kind of stemmed from what Marcella's vision was when she donated it and yeah, created the friends group and created the trust to facilitate those wishes of hers. I always say this segment focuses on the underrated, but in this case, I believe that's especially true. I didn't know until recently that Schumacher was a full-fledged park. I actually thought it was some other kind of county property. Do you find that that's a common mistake? The park itself is open every day, sunrise to sunset, and a lot of people, even though there's a Dane County Park sign right out front, don't know that this is a park. And I think it's because, A, there is a historic farmhouse there, so it looks like a private property, and B, there was another private residence that's on the other side of the entrance. Now that residence has actually been taken over by the county, and it's going to be demolished and just incorporated into the park. But it kind of looks like a private residence, so a lot of people don't no, even though like people like myself didn't know, even though I drive by it all the time. So it's always a mission of ours to let people know that we're not a private residence. We are a county park that's open every single day for people to come and enjoy the grounds. Besides just being a park, it's both a historic and active farm, right? What all do you have growing there? So we do have soybean fields and we do have Um, Like in the fall, we'll do pumpkin and um, have those available for the community. We have an orchard of apple trees, and we also have a garden in the historic farmyard, so near to the historic farmhouse and the original barn. We grow vegetables there in the growing season, and we have volunteers that are all helping with that, and that produce is just available for the public. We grow items that are historically appropriate for what Marcella and her family would have grown because they basically, you know, were a homestead here when she grew up. So the kind of vegetables and produce that she would have had, we do have here in our heritage garden. So that includes like grapes and tomatoes and herbs and rhubarb and, you know, all sorts of things that are like local and that they would have used in the growing season. And then, so we have property surrounding us that is being farmed, you know, by other farmers, but we are acquiring some more acres of that land and we'll be converting that from farmland to prairie. So we'll have more trails and just more prairie space around us. What kind of events does the park host? Our trails and grounds are open every day of the year, sunrise to sunset, like any other park. So you could come in and just use the bathrooms and the water fountain. But then we do have like our special community events. We have three big ones. We do a music festival in the spring. We do Heritage Fest. That's kind of our oldest event. That's like here at the park, definitely geared towards families where we showcase like old-fashioned woodworking and knitting and just all sorts of different displays and interactive things for kids regarding history and or nature. And that's all throughout the park. Um, And then we also have our Halloween at the farm, which is, again, another family-friendly thing. And there we just have like kind of different exhibits throughout the farm and hay rides through the prairie and stuff like that. So those special events and other things like we have fundraisers is when we would open the farm house, the actual farmhouse. It's furnished like it would be like with um, period appropriate antiques and furnishings. Um, So that itself, yeah, is only open for special events and or tours that we might set up with students. You know, sometimes we have field trips that were more frequently pre-COVID and we're just working right now on getting field trips and more student experiences back here at the park. And that did include like farmhouse tours all year round because we do events inside or outside. We have various workshops that are available for the community. And so those are anything that's really geared just toward DIY or history or anything. You know, we do 
wellness workshops and stuff. We just did a few wreath-making workshops, Christmas centerpiece-making workshops. We've done cheese-making, barn quilt painting. We do wood stove cooking workshops in the farmhouse. We do line dancing lessons, photography workshops, maple sap workshops. I mean, there's just so much. And these are people that we make connections with and want to offer a chance for the community to learn something, make something. And so some of these are geared towards adults. Some of these are geared towards kids. Some are geared towards families. We, like last year for the first time, we did like a refurbishing old tools workshop. You know, all our workshops, they're all really hands-on and you're like learning a skill and something just that's really fun. So we have workshops usually at least once a month throughout the year. So between that and those special events that we have and then just other random events like the Christmas teas, we do a springtime on the farm. So that's just a afternoon um, in the springtime where we have flying kites and just various nature activities. We do a winter day on the farm and that's usually like late January, early February. Again, just an afternoon in the summer for families to come and just do some outdoor nature activities in the dead of winter. Um, So yeah, we have a lot going on and that's all facilitated by our staff or our board or our volunteers or other people who are coming here to facilitate these special workshops and whatever skill they may have. So on the note of those workshop events, the Women's Wellness Evenings seem to have been a breakout hit this year. Could you go into more detail about those? Besides working here, I am a yoga instructor as well. So I actually am the one to facilitate these workshops. I had such a great space here and I wanted to offer some sort of special workshops. It's more than just a yoga class. That's like a whole experience. And we started that for the autumn equinox first to kind of just celebrate that transition of our seasonal calendar. And it was super popular. There's just something comfortable about being amongst all other women. So these workshops involve an hour yoga flow class. And then we do a 30-minute guided meditation. So that's lying down on our mat. And it's just a time to totally relax. And then after that, we do some journaling, some intention setting, And then each workshop ends with a bonfire outside under the stars and the full moon, if we have it on the full moon or whatever. And we also have a hot beverage for each workshop. Like the next one, it's going to be a spiced gingerbread latte. We've done hot cider. Going to do hot chocolate here for the next one coming up later for the winter solstice. So just something kind of warm and soothing as we sit around the bonfire. And then most people take what their intentions were that they wrote down in their journaling session and toss it into the bonfire to kind of let those intentions out into the universe. We've gotten a lot of really great feedback, which is why we just keep adding more. We have one actually tonight for the December full moon, and then we have another one scheduled for the winter solstice. And so those are both sold out. They do tend to sell out weeks or maybe even a month in advance. So, you know, keep an eye out when we open new ones. We're going to start in 2023 doing two a month. We're going to do one for the full moon and the new moon in January. And hopefully going forward each month, we'll do that. The next ones are Thursday, January 5th. It's not on the date of the full moon, but with our calendar here, we're going to honor it that day. Same thing for the new moon. We're going to be honoring it on Sunday evening, January 22nd. They're not full yet. There's still spots available for people to sign up, which can be done on our website on the SchumacherFarmPark.org website. And like I said, I'm the one that facilitates them. And it's been really, really fun. Well, that's all I have for today. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. Anyone interested in attending events at the park can sign up at their website, 
schumacherfarmpark.org. I'll link that in the online version of this article at wortfm.org. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wartfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we ended up with a little more snow yesterday than I was anticipating, about half an inch when all was said and done. It could hardly have been lovelier, however, especially after the lower atmosphere finally saturated up in the midday hours producing those big uh, dendritic snowflakes floating earthward in what was a moist and relatively calm environment. Uh, both those factors help keep the snowflakes large and even kind of clumped together a little bit, especially when the precipitation rates picked up. The melting of that snow then on the still warm ground led to a damp, low-level environment during this past overnight, uh, also a calm overnight, and that resulted in fog development and some thick, low cloud cover, which has continued to dog us through the day today. Uh, Those skies did remain clear up above that, up about 3,000 feet or so. Well, as I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, we've got a storm on its way towards us tomorrow, the upper air precursors of which are visible on the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage. Indeed, over the roughly three days of that image sequence, if you have a look at it, you can see the leftward spinning upper low that's been swirling off the coast of California start to get bumped inland by incoming energy off the Pacific and consolidated circulation now over about western Arizona, from where it will lift rapidly northeast along the adjacent subtropical branch of the jet, developing a surface response tomorrow over the Panhandle region. This is going to be a fast-moving storm like uh, many of the ones we've seen recently, so precipitation with it should move through the area fairly quickly after onset early Friday, with most of it out of the area then by later Friday afternoon. The track of the surface circulation is still not entirely settled on the higher resolution computer models, but a path somewhere through central or northern Illinois is fairly likely. And temperature profiles are going to be borderline for snow here at Madison, so I expect the best totals will probably be to our north or northwest, with wetter and more rain-mixed snows then to the south down towards the Illinois border. The Global Forecast Systems model is still producing the warmest result of the model suite with uh, distinctly more rain, but most of the other models are cold enough for primarily snow here in Madison, so I'm leaning towards uh, those as the ones to verify. Uh, that said, though, the snow should be quite wet, and uh, we may get some, uh, though we may get some decent precipitation rates during the day Friday, accumulations may not go much north of uh, an inch or two. After that, a wave which is currently visible on the water vapor diving southeastward off the Oregon coast will pass across the country on Saturday. 
The models hadn't been making too much of this until the past day or two, but it does now appear we may get a second round of light snow sometime probably later in the day Saturday, perhaps into the overnight period. This system looks to be less organized and faster moving than t Friday's wave, but we may see another oh, half inch or possibly even an inch out of that, if, uh, at least if we don't warm too much to uh, mix it with rain. A much stronger wave, though, is then expected in the middle of next week. This would be sometime in the Tuesday or Wednesday time frame. Uh, this one is currently visible on the wider water uh, vapor view on the weather webpage out in the North Pacific Ocean, west of the Aleutian Islands. And the storm is predicted to draw a significant amount of cold air down from Canada, down the western part of the continent as it comes ashore, creating a much more amplified and slower moving series of waves preceding it. So we may see some more significant weather develop uh, in the mid part of next week here in the upper Midwest. Stay tuned on that score. Uh, but back to the uh, forecast for tonight, uh, low cloud cover may uh, thin in a few spots going forward, but we should generally see cloudy skies hang in overnight with temperatures dropping back to the upper 20s on northeasterly winds veering uh, east at about 3 to 7 miles per hour. Tomorrow should be mostly cloudy between some lingering low clouds in the morning, especially and increasing high clouds as uh, Friday's system starts to approach through the day. Temperatures will reach the mid to upper 30s on easterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Light snow may begin to fall uh, sporadically overnight, uh, but more likely towards dawn on Friday with a low temperature in the low 30s. Friday, should uh, snow should work into the area in the early morning hours with southern areas again staying wetter, possibly even snow-free, and more snow the further north you go in the listening area. And again, a couple of uh, inches of wet snow, uh, heaviest during the late morning hours, will fall in Madison most likely, with temperatures in the low to mid-30s during the day on east to northeast winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Snow should taper off and then uh, knock off completely by late afternoon, with partial clearing then possible overnight, with temperatures holding in the 30-degree range. And Saturday will be mostly cloudy, with skies thickening additionally in the late day hours, with uh, light snow again possible uh, late day and through the evening. Uh, high temperatures will be in the mid-30s with lows near 30 degrees Saturday night. And Sunday looks uh, partly to mostly cloudy and back in the mid-30s. The cold air for the moment is staying north of us up in Canada. At the moment down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 32 degrees. The dew point temperature is 25. Winds are out of the northwest at 6 miles per hour. Overcast uh, now at about 2,000 feet. The ceiling's rising a little bit as more dry air comes into the area. And the barometer's rising at 30.38 uh, 30 inches of mercury. We go now to December 1969, when anti-war protests turned violent. Black students scored a major victory, and women came together to talk of liberation. Stu Levitan has the news you can use from 53 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. All these come They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, December 1969. On the 10th, Governor Warren Knowles signs into law the seventh bill this year cracking down on student protest. The new law, another response to the black study strike in February, 
sets a minimum one-semester suspension from university attendance or employment for any person convicted of a felony or misdemeanor arising out of the forceful disruption of classes, the disruption of pedestrian or vehicular traffic, or the seizure of university buildings. Two days later, an action by the Madison Chapter of Students for a Democratic Society leaves four protesters arrested and four campus policemen injured after a free-swinging melee at T-16, the Quonset hut at the corner of Linden and Babcock Drives used for ROTC instruction. Demonstrators hurl snowballs and insults. Police respond with chemical mace. About 200 radicals then move through campus, smashing windows in the Sterling Hall, Bascom Hall, and the Humanities Building. Then a vanguard of about two dozen students attack the unguarded Peterson Administration Building, where they throw garbage cans through the large interior plate glass windows and destroy or remove thousands of the hated photo ID cards. The destructive vandalism is attributed to small autonomous affinity groups, whose ranks have been growing since the Black Studies strike. The Daily Cardinal applauds the objectives and accomplishments of the march, but decries the poor execution resulted in, quote, the needless and counterproductive property destruction. Covering the action for the Cardinal, Leo Burt. At a quarter after four in the morning of December 28th, former student Carl Armstrong breaks three windows in T-16, tosses in two one-gallon jugs filled with gasoline, and lights a match. University senior Bryce Larson hears the breaking glass, sees the flickering flames, and calls campus police. The Madison Fire Department is able to save the building, limiting damage to about $1,000. Police track Armstrong's footprints to Trip Circle, but lose the trail and never develop any suspects. On New Year's Eve, Armstrong enlists his brother Dwight, who works at Maury Airfield in Middleton, in a plan to steal a plane to make a bombing run on the Badger Ordnance Works in Baraboo. About two hours into 1970, Carlton drops three makeshift bombs of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, ANFO. They fall harmlessly into the snow and do not explode. Driving back to Madison, Carlton is pulled over by police and given a warning for speeding. And authorities are worried about the coming generation. On the 9th, the UW Daily Cardinal publishes a feature report on the young radicals making good trouble at West High School. The next day, Principal David A. Spencer suspends a student for handing out copies of the issue after he was told not to. And there are other revolutions going on. On the 1st, the faculty unanimously accepts plans to establish a Department of Afro-American Studies that would grant B.A. and B.S. degrees in the new Afro-American Studies major, the primary demand of the Black Studies strike in February. Proponents hope the Regents and Coordinating Council for Higher Education give final approval in time for the department to start next fall. And later that week, a two-day Women's Liberation Conference draws about 70 women to the University YWCA on Brook Street. Workshops include The Psychology of Women, Women and Sex, Family Structure Alternatives, Women and Racism, Roles of Women in Other Cultures, Images of Women in the Mass Media, Women as Exploited Consumers, Jobs and Pay Structure for Women, and Women's Liberation as Part of Total Change and maybe a revolution where the revolutionaries live. 
city planners propose a massive urban renewal project for the Mifland neighborhood, featuring high-rise condominium units designed for adults working downtown. But the plan runs into trouble at the Plan Commission, as area alder Paul Soglin pushes rehabilitation and renovation rather than new construction. And these personalities in the news. On the 19th, business professor James Grasskamp, UW-PhD 1964, is named the state's Handicapped Person of the Year by the Governor's Committee on Employment of the Handicapped. Grasskamp developed polio in 1950 at age 17 and has been in a wheelchair since as a quadriplegic. He joined the faculty in 1964 and is an owner of Landmark Research Incorporated and a commissioner of the nonprofit Industrial Land Utility Corp. On the 18th, quirky attorney Edward Ben Elson, 28, co-owner of the No Hassle Head Shop and Clothing Store, 813 University Avenue, declares his candidacy for Dane County District Attorney at the Wilson Hotel while wearing a modish gray Edwardian suit and maroon shirt. Convicted in June of violating the state law requiring motorcyclists to wear helmets, Elson vows to not enforce that and other, quote, bad laws, such as those against marijuana and cohabitation. He warns it may even become a crime someday not to wear a seatbelt. Despite his weak showing in the spring mayor election and calling himself mad as a hatter, Elson says he's dead serious and will campaign vigorously as the only candidate of the American Transcendental Party. And economics professor emeritus Harold M. Groves, a founder of the modern cooperative movement, the intellectual and political father of Wisconsin's first-in-the-nation unemployment compensation and homestead tax credit for the elderly, and an important supporter of Frank Lloyd Wright, passes away in his sleep on December 2nd at the family home, 1418 Drake Street, one of six children of a Lodi farm couple. Groves earned three degrees at Wisconsin, taking his doctorate in 1927 under the legendary professor John R. Commons, and later held the endowed chair named in Commons' honor. Groves served in the Assembly and Senate in the early 1930s as a progressive Republican and also as state tax commissioner. Groves was the chief faculty sponsor and patron of the interracial, interreligious women's cooperative Groves House, which opened in 1943 at 1104 West Johnson Street. A friend of Frank Lloyd Wright's since the 1930s, Groves and his wife Helen helped the architect build the Unitarian Meeting House and were leaders of Citizens for Monona Terrace. Groves served six years on the city's auditorium committee until he was replaced by the anti-Monona Terrace mayor, Henry Reynolds, in 1961. He ran for the Common Council in 1963, losing to 30-year incumbent Harrison Garner. Harold Groves was 72. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer was David Ahrens. Our reporter this evening was Andy Barrow. Thanks also to Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan was our on-air engineer. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. 
Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.